Welcome to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring inspiring new devotionals and forums given each week on BYU campus. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Thanks for your introduction, Vice President Reese. I'm honored to represent the College of Fine Arts and Communications in this forum, and I deeply appreciate the efforts of faculty, staff, and student collaborators from my college who have aided me in creating this presentation. Alex, thank you for setting the tone for this meeting. As always, I'm in awe of your efforts and artistry. I also want to thank the members of the forum committee, especially Melissa Hockley and John Rosenberg. I love BYU forums, and I'm excited to contribute to the ongoing dialogue the university forum invites. I am a mother of 20-year-old twin daughters. I'm a 53-year-old woman. I've been married to my favorite human for 32 years. I'm a daughter, a sister, I'm a young women's leader. I am a faith-filled member of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am a teacher. I reside in the western United States at the base of a beautiful mountain range. Additionally, I'm an academic who thinks and writes about youth and digital media and performance. Truthfully, I have less time to think about adolescence and performance these days because I'm also an administrator at this university, where I spend much of my time leading college meetings and completing university paperwork. These sentences only describe some of me. I'm also a part of a civic community, a religious community, an academic community, a theater community, a hiking community, and so on. It's from all of these contexts that I've read and reread communication scholar Amy Carrillo Rowe's essays. One of these says, The sites of our belonging constitute how we see the world, what we value, who we are becoming. She also says, The meaning of self is never individual, but instead is a shifting set of relations that we move in and out of, often without reflection. The scholar confides in readers that she has often resided in spaces where she has shifted and changed as a part of the environment and the people within it. However, she notes that she has still thought of herself as singular despite adaptations to environments and people. Don't we all do that? Carrillo Rowe describes this mode as ineffective in our contemporary moment. She makes the point that we can no longer live lone and adjacent to each other. Instead, she invites us to see our relationships to others as more visible and intertwined. In this way, our being is constituted not first through the self, but in its longings to be with. What matters, then, is where we place our bodies and with whom we build our effective ties. I recognize these ideas from our faith tradition when we say phrases like standing in holy places and loving our neighbor, words that invoke proximity and presence. I've spent a lot of time thinking about what her ideas teach me about my own belongings and our collective belongings and how carefully thinking about the sites of our belonging might impact how we engage with each other in our live spaces and in our digital worlds. Today I'm going to share my personal stories, stories from my arts education classrooms, 
and stories that other artists created. In my sharing of arts ideas, practices, and processes, I hope that we can all get a better sense of how we might expand our own sites of belonging and increase our desires to build effective ties with others that we may not have included in our previous circles. Our interactions in digital worlds often expand our sense of fitting in. I'm an arts educator, as I've said. I think, I write, and teach about the ways that digital media influences us. My work is grounded in theories that support digital learning and acknowledge young people's persistent access to and affinity for digital technologies. In that context, I explore how young people come to understand, practice, and perform their identities within digital and social media spaces. I investigate the ways that educators might help young people to develop and then practice critical and creative approaches to consuming art and making art using digital media. I really value the ways that young people use media by applying its associated ideas, beliefs, and methods. I also deeply care about the ways that young people do media by assimilating its understandings, procedures, and affectivity. Like many of you, I actively consume and create content within digital and social media worlds. My goal in digital settings is to access useful knowledge, encourage my own curiosities, and to identify beauty in the world. I am currently, and with a lot of anxiety, trying to figure out TikTok. I've become a pretty okay Zoom teacher. I'm obsessed with watching YouTube cooking videos made by millennials. I'll tell you it's a niche market. My Netflix account is kind of a disaster. I'm never without a book on Audible. I use Instagram to stay in contact with people that I care about. I particularly enjoy seeing the things that people make. For example, my colleague and visual arts educator, Luis Vega, uses IGTV to introduce his students at Linwood High School to visual arts principals and to showcase the work of guest artists. My neighbor, Dwayne Call, captures beautiful images of the natural world near our homes. His vision of Utah County makes me proud to call it my home. The artist, Sunny Taylor, shares her paintings in progress. Her posts lay bare her art-making processes in ways that truly make me happy. I also use digital media to build and maintain ties with people that I love. I use Google Duo and Facebook Messenger for weekly chats with my twin daughters, Lily and Lauren. Both women are serving missions for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and are across the country from one another. Digital technologies help me to hear their lovely voices and see their beautiful faces. In true mom style, I get to ask them, are you safe? Are you happy? Did you eat some vegetables? And then I see their responses, which is usually a lovingly crafted eye roll. Marco Polo helps me to overcome geographic distance to connect with my mom, my sisters, and their children. Across this year, my sister Mary has shared intense and informative tutorials on using an electric toothbrush. She's a dental hygienist, and so her tutorials are serious business and very useful. People of all ages have done the splits for the camera. And we have spent a lot of time trying to figure out how we can fast-forward through the videos without purchasing the upgrade. Mostly, we have repeatedly asked to see more of my niece Emily's baby girl, Cora Jane. She has her first tooth coming in. 
So she's been a little bit grumpy, but not too bad. <laughs> to me, these are all worthy endeavors in the digital world. In contrast, I have, so I have to admit that sometimes my digital media consumption becomes imbalanced and no longer serves me. There have been times in this last year where the record shows that I picked up my phone more than 100 times in a day. During a particularly dark time, I found myself actively imagining slights for my friends and family as I scrolled through my social media feeds. I chose to consume words and images that fed my fear and anger. I clicked through news reports and memes and tweets that actively supported my persistently narrowing point of view, each time further commodifying the opinions of others through my own likes and follows. I wasn't actively helping those that I felt were marginalized or in danger. Instead, I had let algorithms paralyze me. As a young media scholar, I learned about and valued the notion that media could be made and viewed in charitable ways. My teacher, the BYU film historian Dean Duncan, asserted that film viewing is a vicarious experience in which we begin to understand another's efforts through sympathetic participation at their side. Viewing films in this way allows us to practice truly seeing others as God sees them. Drawing on Duncan's concept of a charitable cinema, the film theorist Sharon Swenson writes, Seeing the acts and choices of others from inside the characters or through a sympathetic narrator's eyes can increase our understanding of the choices of others. The concept of charitable cinema applies to digital and social media, too. Media artifacts, charitably made or viewed, offer us the opportunity to experience other people, to see the reasons they make choices, and to experience the consequences of those choices alongside them. When I actively sought to employ the precepts of a charitable cinema into my digital media consumption and creation, I was better able to consider and more fully appreciate the lives of others. For me, the antidote to my own despair was treating my digital interactions as a reciprocal experience with other human beings. No matter how much I love the digital world and the work associated, I know that our physical bodies and souls associated matter more than any tool. I know that God, in His infinite wisdom, invites, invites us to first love Him and then to love our neighbor. My experiences in the arts have taught me over and over that our bodies matter here and now and in the eternities. I regular, regularly hike on the trails near my home, but last summer, as my worries about the pandemic increased and I narrowed my movement to the, I narrowed my movement to the shoreline trail. Each morning, my dog Dot and I would head south on the trail and then move up towards Slate Canyon. We were often alone, but we also regularly encountered trail friends. We passed one group nearly every day, an older man, his wife, and their three amiable dogs. At first, I just nodded as we shifted around each other, but eventually I smiled and waved as we came upon the group. Occasionally, we briefly chatted with six feet, with six feet between us. We didn't know each other's names, but I was really cheered by our encounters. I recognized them as my neighbors. One day, much later in the year, 
I was hurrying along the trail, calling to Dot to move faster, when we came upon four of them. One of the dogs was missing. I could tell that something had happened, and so I asked if everything was okay. The woman whispered to me from across the path that one of their beloved dogs had passed away. Her face indicated that this was a great loss for them and that her heart was broken and mine broke too. Tears ran down my face as I reached out to put my arms around her and then remembering myself and the confines of the pandemic, I pulled my arms back into my own body and I mouthed, I'm sorry, I'm so very sorry. And she replied, I know, I know. This was a small moment, but I haven't stopped thinking about how much our bodies encountering and then responding to each other on that trail mattered to me. For a moment, I was proximate with my neighbor. Brian Stevenson, the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, taught us in another BYU forum that proximity allows us to see and hear things that we wouldn't otherwise see or hear. He reminded us as we, that as we intentionally cultivate immediacy with others, our knowledge increases, and we are better able to problem-solve. Ravi S. Rajan, the president of the California Institute of the Arts, extends this notion to arts-making and receiving. He suggests that the act of creation fosters new proximity to problems, to history, and to the everyday circumstances we might not think about. He calls on artists to meet this particular moment of distance and division by making art that shows us how we got here, art that reveals us, art that binds us together. When I hear this charge, I immediately think about the public school theater and English classrooms where I taught for most of my 20s. Teaching and learning with those young people changed me politically, socially, intellectually, and spiritually. I also think of the secondary classrooms where pre-service theater and media and English teachers here at BYU will find their teacher voices and find their teacher moves. For me, arts classrooms, and especially performing arts classrooms, are sacred spaces where we have, count where we have countless opportunities to become proximate and feel the natural inclination to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those in need of comfort. A few years ago, a drama teacher and scholar, Jo Beth Gonzalez, shared a story about her own intentional community building within a drama classroom. This story and the teacher who shared it influenced my artistic and pedagogical practice daily. I wanted to give you a tangible example of how arts classrooms invite proximity and presence. So with Jo Beth's permission, I invited a group of BYU artists, educators, and students to create an evocation of that story. Here it is. One Friday afternoon, a student from my introductory theater class, Sue, died in a car accident. Monday, the first day of classes after the accident, I expected students to be upset because Sue had been close to several of them. And when class began, I said that Sue was always a lively presence in class and that we knew she would not be back to sit in her seat again. I recognized that we could feel her loss, but claimed that her memory would remain with us throughout the semester. 
We paused in silence for a while. Then I asked if anyone would like to say anything. No one spoke. I asked if they would like a little time to reflect, either silently or in words or movement, and someone quietly offered that movement would be nice. My student teacher and I taped a long piece of brown paper across the blackboard. I pulled out a container of colored Sharpies and explained that anyone could get up at any time, as often as they wanted, to draw a picture or a thought they had, or they could write a few words to sue herself or in tribute or in a memory of her. They could even respond to each other. I began by drawing a picture and added a couple of words. Then students, one by one, stepped up to the wall. At times, four or five students stood along the brown paper. We ebbed and flowed like this for 15 minutes or so. Eventually, I suggested that everyone read the wall, since they had collectively made it. A student asked if we could give the brown paper mural to Sue's mom. I agreed, and the student offered to take it to her. Silently, my student teacher and I took it down and folded the long sheet in half. I said to the class, I'll fold it like a stage backdrop. So I made a crease after each fold and aligned the sides. After folding, the brown paper was a small 12 by 5 inch package. I placed a piece of the red duct tape across the back, turned it over, and wrote, To Sue's family, from intro to drama, and said to the class, let's all sign it. Everyone passed the package around, and after the last person signed it, I handed it to Sue's friend, who put it in her backpack. Later, my student teacher noted that the class that day felt spiritual. He said that the time I took to fold the paper the care I took with each crease was the process of packing up Sue's life in our class with meaningful attention. As Jo Beth's story illustrates, arts classrooms can provide space where young people and, and their teachers practice the proximity that Brian Stevenson describes. Spaces where their presence and the presence of others matter where their bodies matter, where their very souls matter. Our bodies, our souls, need practice in critical thinking and creating. Critical thinking and creating is vital to our agency, the very element we are all here to develop. The violinist and BYU professor Alexander Woods says, my creative practice is the work of translation, I have always resonated with music. I love how music is vibrations. In other words, for Alex, music is primarily a physical thing. He continues, These vibrations pass through each of us in a unique way. As I translate a piece of music, I hope to be true to how the music affects me, and I hope to affect my listeners in the same way. 
Practice provides a set-apart time to connect mind and body. In this space, I'm free to find the truth about my playing. I can begin to answer questions such as, am I getting enough sound? Am I getting the sound I want? Will my interpretation have its intended impact on the audience? This is a time of mindful inquiry. Is some, this time of mindful inquiry is something I truly enjoy. In my classes, we call what Alex describes critical creativity. Critical creativity necessitates both critical thinking or the active participation in disciplinary discourses, methodologies, and interpretive frames, and creativity, which involves imaginative explorations that lead to authentic ideas and original work. BYU visual arts education professor Daniel T. Barney describes a critical creative approach in this way. He says, Artists move between concepts, play with possibilities, problem find as opposed to problem solve, and tinker with available understandings, objects, relations, and representations. In my digital media class, pre-service pre teachers study the photography and video works of Nina Kachadorian. We do this as an example of cre critical creativity. Her ongoing series, Seed Assignment, consists of photographs, video, and sound works that have all been made while flying on an airplane. The project began unexpectedly with an international flight in 2010 and is ongoing. Kachadorian sets her own constraints for her work. For example, she begins and completes the project during the course of the flight. She only uses a camera phone and materials that are readily available around the seat that she's assigned on the airplane or materials that she finds in the airplane bathroom. She has generated artistic work in, on almost 200 flights in the last 11 years. She describes the project in this way. She says, seat assignment is born from an investment in thinking on your feet, from optimism about the artistic potential that lurks within the mundane, and from the curiosity, uh, and from curiosity about the productive tension between freedom and constraint. Here are three images from this series. She entitles this part of the series, Lavatory Self-Portraits in the Flemish Style. She describes her process for making these, saying, I spontaneously put a tissue paper toilet seat cover over my head, and I took a picture in the mirror using my cell phone. The image, to me, evoked 15th century Flemish portraiture. I decided to add more images. I decided to add more images made it in this mode and planned to take advantage on the long-haul flight from San Francisco to Auckland. I made several forays to the bathroom for my aisle seat, and by the time we landed, I had a large group of new photographs. At first glance, one might not find value in her work. As children, my daughters described contemporary art like this as the freaky stuff that mom loves. And it's true, I am a fangirl of Cachadorian's work. Here's why. She is curious about the world around her. She imaginatively explores the resources within her reach. She works to understand complex and competing histories within her discipline. In actively practicing critical and creative approaches, she asserts her own educated ideas into art's conversation. She practices proximity to the ideas that interest her by engaging her mind and body, and I would add, her very soul. 
to develop these understandings. Art making and viewing teaches us that where we place our bodies matters. The holy ground we create in physical and digital spaces matter. Context matters. While making art, we often learn that the circumstances that impact our own bodies, as well as the souls of others, must be carefully and generously considered. Art experiences help us to better understand the backgrounds, situations, and circumstances that make up the souls that we encounter. Collaborating with other artists, we learn that individuals bring their own unique skills and beliefs and experiences to any creative endeavor. Intentionally making or viewing art with others' perspectives in mind helps us to arrive at informed choices that are consistent with our own values while welcoming and appreciating the perspectives of others. Benjamin Thevenin, a media literacy professor on this campus, invites us to think about perspective-taking when we view art. He says, There's no single authoritative meaning inherent in a work of art. Rather, there always exists the possibility of multiple meanings, determined both by the characteristics of that work and the diverse experiences, perspectives, and associations the audience brings. The work of choreographer and BYU dance education professor Kori Wakamatsu exemplifies the arts thinking that values context. Kori developed the choreography for the contemporary dance The Burden of Nonsense in the fall of 2020. It was then performed by the BYU Contemporary Dance Theater in 2021. Like many of us, Corey often felt confounded by the pressures and insecurities that rose in 2020. She felt the weight of the pandemic and also deeply feared increased racial violence against minority populations within the United States. In her artist statement about the work, she says, In addition to global turmoil, it was a time of grief and struggle for my family. Attempts to find clarity or sound reasoning often led to nonsensical meanderings. Through her own creative processes, modes of inquiry, and inspiration, she developed a choreographic intent that reflected that weight. She says, The rice bag props were inspired by hoarding trends. Scarcity of toilet paper was amusing at times, but when I could not find rice for my family— the realities of the pandemic hit me with heaviness. There was something unsettling and ironic about the inability to find rice for my Asian American family while Asian Americans were simultaneously being persecuted across the country. My husband's family, she says, uses a colloquial term for the United States, which roughly translates to rice country, or in other words, land of plenty. Visually, the rice bags represent weight and physical items, yet carry metaphorical meanings of burden and overload, as we see here in segments of the performance.
Importantly, Corey also invited the student dancers to commit their skills and ideas to the development process. She describes their collaborative work saying, we experimented with movement inspired by a long list of words that included confusion, upside down, discombobulation, blur, pause, shift, break, and nonsensical. During the final rehearsals, we discussed how dancers could artistically convey ideas of burden and nonsense. I encouraged the performers to find motivation in the fact that everyone has burdens whether they are apparent or not, and that the pandemic exacerbated the bewildering effects of turbulence. In viewing this piece, Professor Wakamatsu's context matters. Her dancers' context matter, but our reaching out to her with our own context, that also matters. Arts making provides the ways and means for us to recognize and appreciate one another. Several years ago, Dr. Ronnie Joe Draper and I, along with a group of arts education colleagues, set out to write a scholarly book. This book was about arts education and literacies, and arts education and the literacies required to teach and learn authentically within the arts. While the others in the group were practicing artists and arts educators, Ronnie Joe was a literacy educator who had taught mathematics in a secondary setting and was currently teaching multicultural education classes at BYU. We began the book by asserting that education as an endeavor provides opportunities for human beings to practice the skills and create the associations necessary to actively engage in the world. We emphasize that preparing human beings with the intellectual and principled habits necessary to wholeheartedly participate in the world required conversation. In the introduction to the book, we wrote, while conversation may result in the exchange of information, inquiry, persuasion, discovery, or the improvement of the human condition, it certainly needn't. Rather, conversation simply allows humans to acknowledge and enjoy one another. Preparing to write the book, Ronnie Joe took this notion of conversation seriously. To better understand the processes, texts, and literacies associated with the arts, she took classes and workshops here at BYU. She sang in the University Chorale, led by one of our collaborators, Paul Broomhead. She studied art-making processes with Dan Barney and his visual arts education students. Pam Muscle taught her to move with other beginning dancers, and she engaged in performance practices alongside my theater educators in my classroom. She sought out opportunities to understand and made efforts to belong. In sharing our experiences, stories, tools, and processes, she came to see herself as an art maker, as a creator. By viewing our arts-making processes and participating in artistic efforts, she became a part of our communities of practice. Anyone that knows Ronnie Jo knows that this is only part of her story. She's an avid knitter, a film producer, a mother, a grandmother, an LGBTQ advocate, a teacher, a scholar, and an indigenous woman. At her core, she is a learner. She gathers useful knowledge and experiences and then actively applies them in her efforts to acknowledge, enjoy, advocate for, and embrace others. 
She embodies the university charge set forth in the aims of a BYU education to continually develop faith, intellect, and character in order to bless her family, her community, her church, and the larger society. To demonstrate how intentional acts of creation can lead to a sense of belonging, I asked her how she marshals her knowledge and experiences to identify and create good things in the world. Here is one of her stories. My great-grandmother, Lucinda, was a basket maker, and she was a master basket maker. Her baskets were on display for many, many years in the San Francisco Natural History Museum as examples of Yurok basketry. And so basket making is important to the the Yurok people, um, and it was important to her. It was clearly part of my um I felt like a part, like my inheritance that I needed to continue somehow, but I didn't know how to do it. And I wanted Lucinda to teach me how to make baskets, which would be impossible. Um, she passed away just within months after I was born. So we were only on the earth together for a very, very short time. But I, but I had this, had this feeling that I, that this is something I could learn to do, and that would be like a way of um, continuing her work. I have a cousin who has returned to basket making. Um, and so when I went to the reservation, I spent a lot of time with my cousin and learning how to gather, learning how to weave, and, and even in some ways for us teaching each other. Uh, you know, my first degree is in mathematics. And, you know, my cousin was saying, I just don't know, like, how to go about doing this pattern, how to, how to think through the pattern. And I said, well, you know, we've got to think about how many weaves, how many sticks you have up, and let's sort of divide that out. And then she brightened her face up and she just said, this is what we needed. We needed you to bring back <laughs> this math knowledge. Like, yeah, like, like being a geometry teacher in this moment is the one of the ideal situations to be able to figure out how to put the pattern on the basket. And my father had always told me, like, your great grandma, Lucinda, was excellent at mathematics. She could she could just figure it out. She didn't have patterns sitting next to her. She just knew how many like how many sticks were up, how many what pattern could go into that basket. And so I was very interested in learning that and I felt sad in a way that, that Lucinda wasn't there to help me. But then I found myself being on the land and being in the spaces that I knew that that she had been. And I could imagine that because this is just the truth, like I knew like I'm carrying her DNA. Her DNA is in me. I I imagine that I can look at my hands and there's a resemblance of her hands, that, that I can look at my face and there's a resemblance of her face. There's something that it's not just, it's not just a shadow, like it's a physical um, presence of her in me. And then when I would stand on the land, I would know like that's where she stood. That's where our people have stood for thousands of years. Um, that's where we understand the creator placed us. That was the beginning of the world. And then when I would 
reach out and gather maybe willow roots or willow sticks or or hazel or whatever that I can imagine that that plant had the same DNA of the plants that Lucinda touched like time and space it didn't matter so much like we were we were together in that moment I was carrying her she was guiding my hands and I was observing the plants that she had observed that she had tended and now I was tending them and it was it was truly glorious it was I I don't know I I I think that's I think I, I think it was heaven I think it was such a beautiful way for us to be together we live in a digital world. We use digital media every day. We do digital and social media so regularly that it's infused into nearly all of the ways that we engage with others. I began today with a call for us to actively consider where we place our bodies, where we send our souls, and with whom we build our effective ties. In both our physical and in our digital worlds, we should learn to create proximity and immediacy rather than distance and division. Carrillo Rowe proposes that we long for a world that is more inclusive and representative of the whole of who we should be. She imagines individuals leaning and tipping towards others, just making a little effort to close the distance between people that sometimes feels overwhelming. We should all practice leaning and tipping towards charitable interpretations of others. We should practice purposefully placing our bodies, carefully orienting our souls, in order to create holy ground where our own souls can expand and the worth of other souls can be perceived. In Omni of the Book of Mormon, we're told to offer our whole souls as an offering. What matters then is where we place our bodies, where we take our souls, and with whom we build our effective ties. We can, in fact, no longer live alone and adjacent to each other. We must see our relationships to others as more visible and intertwined. And education in the arts has taught me that we should carefully practice seeing all people as sharing the same trails, where joy is transmitted in simple gestures and pain can be comforted through pure empathy and understanding. These are the gifts of proximity and presence. These are the blessings of loving our neighbors. This is the holy ground we can create in all of the spaces we inhabit. This, this is the sacred classroom we can all share. I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My name is Jeremy Rogers. I'm a theater education major. Um, my question was, with the increasing ease of use of like Marco Polo and Google Duo, how can we balance the effort to be in those digital space with people versus wanting to be with them in a physical space? Oh, yeah. I actually, I actually love physical space. 
And even though I often study about digital space, I don't think it's healthy just to reside in a digital space. And so as teachers, I think that we need to honor that our students love the digital arena and that it has power in their life and that it really matters. Like dismissing the digital arena is not it's not effective. It's not, it's not helpful to young people who think about it as their life. But I do think that one of the things that we can do ourselves and with our students is think about how we have engaging creative activities within digital spaces and that we balance those with engaging critical, engaging critical creative activities in physical spaces. And so I don't think it's about dismissing one or the other. I love both. And I think right now our world is a little bit imbalanced. Like we're a little bit more uh, eager to be in a digital environment. And so I think it's just about figuring out what that balance is. And I think it's probably different for every one of your classrooms. But I would really, really honor uh, that students' experience is a digital experience. And it's, it's, they care about it. I don't know why I'm even saying this to you guys, because you care about it. <laughs> it is your experience. Um, I'm kind of an old lady, so it's not completely my experience. But I am saying that also because I know you love physical space, too. I think about, um, I think about our end assignment in, in uh, class last semester, where we were trying to figure out what that balance was. And we achieved that in some ways, and we didn't achieve that in some ways. But because we cared about the processes that are involved in digital creation and we cared about the processes that are involved in physical creation, we could, we could bring those together in authentic ways. And from my perspective, because I was watching your performances in really beautiful ways that mattered. They, they mattered to me and I think that they mattered to your peers too. My name is Sydney Southwick, and I am a theater education major. Um, you talked about a lot of wonderful, positive aspects of digital media, and we also know that there are a lot of scary and intimidating things out there in the digital world. So I wanted to ask you, um, how, as we increase digital media in the classroom, how do we protect that sacred space of our performing arts classrooms that you discussed? Yeah, I think, um, I don't know if I have any one answer to that, but I do think that it, um, creating a safe classroom where there's a rich expanse of digital media used requires collaboration with other teachers and staff that are in the building. I think it's really important to know what, what the law is uh, regarding using digital media in your classrooms, I think it's really important for you to know um, what's acceptable in, in, your, in your school, and that will help you to de determine what's, what's safe for you in the classroom. And then I think that thinking about, uh, thinking about safety for our students, I don't really have a complete answer to that yet. I think that the more that we encourage them to be in uh, spaces where they're creative rather than consuming, that's one aid um, in, in terms of helping them to be safe. Because when our creative minds are working, I think that 
Well, I think regardless of whether you're in a secondary classroom or wherever you are, when your creative mind is way, uh, working, God is present there. Even if we're not articulating that God is there, God is present when we're creating. And so the more opportunities that we give to students to create with digital media and create with their bodies, the more likely it is that they might see themselves as eternal, even if they don't have those words, even if they don't care about those words. They might feel it in here. Thank I don't you. think that answered that question very well. <laughs> you did great. Thank you. <laughs> Hey, Sarah. Hi, I'm Sarah McDonald. I'm a theater education major. So here's my question. Um, what format would you use to first help students learn how to respond to and communicate with their peers' digital creations compassionately and honestly? Okay, that is a really interesting question because as you know, uh, there are so many possible formats out there. So one of the things that I do with you guys is I try to investigate what, uh, what types of formats you're using, um, what's of interest to you, what you're already integrating into your daily life, and then I try to figure out how to put those into my classroom and have us critically think about those as we're creating or as we're consuming. I think the same thing can happen with, um, I think that it, it can happen with our elementary and our secondary students. Um, if, we, if, if we're in a setting with them for a long period of time, we can simply find out what they're interested in, what they value, and then figure out how to bring that into the class. Now, I do want to say that I really care about curation also. I think that I have a lot of stuff that I love uh, in, in the digital world, and I want to be able to bring that in too. And I think that I think that there's lots of ways that we can teach and learn together as we as we share artifacts, as we share software, as we share ideas about how to create within those spaces. Um, now that being said, I'm not an advocate of any particular software, as many of you know, because it tends to like go out of fashion really quickly. And so I think it's just, I think the most important, more important than format is really just us making a commitment to be a lifelong learner. Just us going, I'm going to continue to learn this. Or I'm going to have somebody by my side that will help me to learn this if I'm really bad at it. That's okay too. That's really okay too. And I, as you know, I do that regularly uh, because I don't know everything about digital media. In fact, maybe like this much. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks. Hi, I'm Claire Eisstone. I'm a theater education major. And you had a lot of really cool thoughts on becoming and being our whole selves in um, your devotional, <laughs> just barely. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on navigating that process of becoming without um, taking on a, a feeling overwhelmed with the expectations of becoming. Yeah, um... That's a question that I ask myself every day. I feel pretty overwhelmed by the world, actually. I feel overwhelmed by sometimes my job responsibilities, sometimes the way I want things to go exactly and perfectly, and uh, the way I imagine the world should be. I feel overwhelmed by that. And um, I watch you, not you, not just you, Claire, all of you. <laughs> I watch all of you and see 
how careful you are and your desire your desire to be good and your desire to be excellent at something. And I adore that. I love that. But I also think that we need to give ourselves rest and we need to practice something for a period of time and then move on to something else. I don't think it's very realistic for us to just try and take everything on. Now, I know that as I'm saying this, you guys are rolling your eyes in the way that my daughters were rolling uh, uh, their eyes at me when I asked them, you know, about food or safety or whatever it was. But I, but I do think that we can't do everything, and but we can become, and we can take uh, we can take that on just a little bit at a time. And when I have done that, when I've made the decision not to do everything but I've made the decision to do something and really work curiously with that one thing, I've found that to be more edifying in my life. I I don't know. Thank you. (laughs) I'm Raina Workman. I am a theater education major. And I have a question about critical creativity. I love the way you explain it, and it's definitely a skill I want to develop. Um, So I'm just wondering, what are some specific ways that one could practice it and cultivate um, critical creativity? Yeah, well, I think that that you only uh, cultivate critical creativity when you're intentional about it. So, like, uh, lots of us in this audience are really invested in creativity. We practice creativity all of the time. And then another portion of us in here is we're really interested in uh, critical approaches to things, analyzing things, taking things apart, and we find joy in that. But I don't think those two things work uh, very well separately. And so I think whatever it is that you're doing, uh, uh, whether you're, uh, I don't know, I mean, you know, you already know, Brandon, that I really hate it when people are just scrolling through Instagram or like, um, and... My husband's over there, and he will tell you that I'm, like, watching... We're, we're watching a Swedish show right now, and I'm, like, scrolling on Instagram. So as I say that, I don't like that about myself either. I love Instagram, but I don't like mindlessness. And so I think it's all about us being intentional about choosing to make something creative rather than passive. And so, I mean, you've made lots of creative assignments in my classes where you were practicing critical creativity, where we made something, and while we were making it, we were thinking about the processes that were involved in making it. And then, maybe this is the important part, we shared it with others who then engaged with us in conversation. And so I think we need to think about, like, we need to think about both uh, critical thinking and creativity while we're making something, but I think the thing that really matters is when we have that conversation where we're going to evolve something or make it just a little bit different, um, and having collaborators really matters in that. I don't know. Did that? I, I keep saying I don't know, but whatever. I know that. I know that part. <laughs> Hi, I'm Isabella Beals. I'm a theater education major. And my question really quickly was, you talked um, in your devotional about learning to lean towards generous interpretations of other people. And I was just wondering if you have done any specific exercises or had any specific experiences in doing that that you can maybe recommend to future educators to do that with their students as well? Yeah, uh, I mean, that's a really good question. I think that um, 
One of the first places that I learned uh, generous interpretations of people was uh, reading literature and reading plays um, and really seeing people whose life circumstances were so different than mine and still enjoying them, sometimes resisting them because they were bad news, but still enjoying them within the context of the play um, sometimes I even played those characters that were really different than me. And that really made a difference to embody somebody whose thinking was so far afield from mine. And so that, that started it. Um, I think I started doing that when I was in high school even, maybe even before that, really just reading stories, reading other people's stories, thinking about stories. But as teachers... I do think it's our responsibility to make sure that um, we shape the conversations about stories towards meaning-making, that we don't just shape the conversations about stories to whether you liked a character or whether you liked a story or whether... Um, those things are important. Like, we like stuff. We enjoy stuff. We, I'm a fan of Nina Kachadorian, and you might not be. <laughs> um, but, um, but shaping those conversations towards meaning-making, I think... So I would start there. I would start with the thing that you teach. You teach about playmaking, or you teach about uh, really reading and writing. And, and so I think conversations around those that um, provide opportunities for people to, young people to meaning, meaning, meaningfully consider others is a really good place to start. And actually, I'm sure this is true for lots of you, but that's the place I always go back to. Like, if I have a minute where I'm not filling out university paperwork, I'm reading a play, or I'm watching a story, or I, I, I'm, I'm, gathering, I'm gathering a story that I've heard on a podcast to see how I might use it. Or I'm inviting, like I did here, I'm inviting collaborators to help me make something. Being able to... Um, being able to put my, I, the, the collage that we made, Chris, who is the voice, uh, who's the voice of the teacher in that story, Chris and I made that collage with the, uh, Joe Ostroff, who's a faculty member in the art department. We made it with an alumnus of that department, and we made it with a recent graduate, and we made it with young people from a high school. And putting my hands on that brown paper while I already knew what Chris had recorded and seeing her hands on that paper at the same time we were working, I loved that. I understood the story better because of Chris's inflections. I understood the story better because of the way that Joe laid something on the collage um, or taught us about how to do a collage at first. Chris and I are not collage makers, would you say? We're not collage makers. But we are now. We, we've practiced it just a little bit. And so I think that's one really great thing that we could think about doing. Thank you. Not making collage. I mean, you can. But... Hi, um, I'm Beth Erickson, and I'm an English teaching major. And um, during this forum, you've talked a lot about finding balance in media usage. And so my question is, um, what advice can you give us on how to evaluate our own usage of media in our own oh, lives? yeah. Well, I'm still working this, on this myself. Um, and I, I really, um, I, 
I used to think that I could like make an evaluation every day, but that never worked for me. So I try about, about every 14 days. This is not something that I'm advocating for anybody. I'm just saying find a practice. <laughs> find a practice where you really think about what you're doing and where you can throw some stuff away and you can add some stuff in. Um, and that might be just cleaning up your feed um, or it might be thinking about uh, what you can do to uh, make something in a new environment that you haven't explored before. So I just try to assess what's going to be useful to me, what's going to seem beautiful to me, and what I should like really put away for a time because it's not serving me. And so I don't know. I think everybody should do that in their own individual way. I don't. My way is not necessarily your way. And Beth, knowing you you will figure out a perfect way to do it for you. And, but I do think that it's a mistake if we don't set aside time to assess uh, our consumption and our creativity. So I guess that's my advice. Thank you. You've been listening to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including classic speeches taken from our vast audio library, as well as other BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.